welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, we talk with Lamar Thorpe. Lamar was born in prison and at two days old was adopted into a Mexican family living in East L.A. and became Martin Hernandez. His first language is Spanish, and it was only when he joined the Navy that he discovered his black identity. He then went to George Washington University and nine years ago moved with his own young family to Antioch, California, where he runs the Los Medanos Community Healthcare District. Lamar became a city council member and in November of last year, the mayor of Antioch, a city of 120,000 people at the northern tip of the San Francisco Bay Area. Antioch is the last stop on the Bar Yellow Line and since George Floyd's death, it's been the epicenter of a very difficult and at times ugly public discussion about race and policing. Since the recent deaths while in Antioch police custody, of Angelo Quinto and Arturo Gomez Calel, Mayor Lamar Thorpe has been at the center of reforming both the police department and the way we think about equity. I start by asking Lamar to describe where we are. We are in the greatest city God ever created, Antioch, California. It's a, such a great name, Antioch. It sounds so <laughs> Greek, like it's like it's it, in the Bible. We should be in, it is in the Bible. <laughs> it is. It was where the where 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 Christians were first called Christians, where they were first named or described as Christians. Was Antioch Christ, right? Yeah. Huh. How long have you been here? I've lived here eight years, and if it's home, it's home now, right? Yeah. So, and, it's, and more uh, more importantly, it's uh, more home to my daughter than anything, since this is well, this will be the place she'll she'll remember for the rest of her life. So, going all the way back, you weren't always called Lamar. And no, you were called Martin. <laughs> Martin. So, how, how tell us the the story of Martin? Ah, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, the story of Martin is um, starts uh, two days after Lamar Thorpe was born in was born in prison, where I was born in prison, and uh, I uh, was placed in in foster care. I was raised by a family who immigrated here from Mexico. How is someone born in prison, and what what does that actually mean? I thought I was born at General Hospital. So my whole life I grew up thinking, oh, that was the hot, my parents used to say you were born in that hospital at LA County General Hospital. And, uh, but it turned out when I met my biological mother on my 21st birthday, uh, she actually explained to me that, no, you were not born at General Hospital. That's where they took me after I gave birth to you uh, as they were trying to take me from the local uh, county jail that she was, which was Sybil Brand Cor- Correctional Facility for Women in Los Angeles County. And she said that I came very quick. <laughs> she kept yelling and screaming, letting the the the, uh, the sheriff's officers, deputies that were there know that, <laughs> look, this baby's coming and he's not waiting. And so uh, she said, I was born there. She did say that when she got to the hospital, she was shackled to the mm. bed. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But I was just kind of blown away that that I learned that I was, I was born in prison, in fact. Which is rare. Very rare. Um but not rare for children in foster care. Mm. Uh, it, that may not mm. be rare. Uh, it turned out uh, one of my brothers who was in foster care with me, he was also born in prison. For many children in foster care throughout California and probably throughout the country have some connection to to prison. 
whether their parents were in there while they were young children or, or whether they were born there. So, and now they do it a little different where they actually, you know, expect children born who were born under the correctional system uh, to actually build bonds because they realize you shouldn't rip children apart from their mo- <laughs> from their mothers. They try their best to try to keep that connection and that critically important bond. So as an adult, I've recognized that that's a truly important moment that I didn't, that I was ripped apart from. Well, now as an adult, I've recognized that um, I may have suffered from what they call reactive detachment disorder, mm. uh, which literally can happen literally the moment you're born if you're detached from that figure that's supposed to be supposed to be yeah your caretaker your so it's been interesting to to live it so it's been uh, it's been interesting and your mom now that your biological mom that must have also been i mean a ridiculously traumatic moment for her absolutely yeah yeah my graduate work was in women's studies and my thesis was in black women's incarceration and she was my case study. So I'd go up to the prison to interview her and all that compounded emotion, the relapses coming in and out of prison, strung out on on heroin. And it was devastating enough to not be able to raise her her first child, my sister. And then five years later, she has another one to fill the void of not being able to raise her first child. And then that child is ripped from her. And so it's just compounded trauma and stress. So I only knew her four, five, five years before she overdosed on heroin and died. It was very, very difficult for her because she just couldn't get over the fact living with that guilt of not being able mm-hmm. to raise her children, which is the one thing, which is the one thing she was born to do <laughs> in her mind. Okay, so you then you then get adopted into this foster family. They wanted lots of kids and it was kind of... Uh, yeah, my mother loved children yeah. uh, and she particularly loved babies and she loved raising them. And interestingly enough, she had this unique interest taking in children who were suffering from drug dependency. Mm. She just wanted to help those most in need. It was high, I mean, crying and all the late nights. It's not like raising a child that's not drug dependent. For my dad and my mom, they had a boy, but he died in labor. She was in labor. And so um, that's where, you know, the name Martin came from. Mm. I think she also had some type of void that she wanted to fill with all these children. That's something that stayed with her, something that you just don't get over, uh, you know, losing your children. It, that's hard. It's, it's yeah, really hard. I, ca- I can't even imagine it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. It really does feel unimaginable. Um, and just that, that pain I know is so, so devastating. So you're in, in East LA in a very Latino community. Well, I wouldn't even say Latino because when Mexican. we were growing up, we, yeah, we were Mexican. We didn't, uh-huh. we weren't called Latinos. Yeah. We weren't called Hispanics. The only thing we were familiar with was Chicano. Mm-hmm. But then like my parents were not all about being Chicano. We're not that. <laughs> we're not any of that. We are Mexican. So yeah, we grew up in a Mexican community and I could literally count probably the number of, of friends that I knew in school or whatnot who were like Guatemalan or Salvadorian because everybody was Mexican. We were very proud of being Mexican. We went to all the different Mexican activities you would do, from a quinceañera to, a, you know, a primera comunión and go to the parties with the DJ. <laughs> There's this idea of assimilating and having opportunities and not being treated differently because you speak Spanish. But now where we grew up, it was like, you speak Spanish. You should be proud of speaking Spanish. So that was your first language, Lamar. That was my first language, Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't odd because everybody at school spoke Spanish. The teachers spoke Spanish, uh, and you quickly learned English in school. 
I grew up knowing that I had to learn English, but I don't remember learning English. And, and when did you start feeling like you were different? There were small, what we would now call microaggressions, <laughs> but I really just ignored them. And I had a hard time understanding what was happening. There were instances I'd encounter black people and that made me feel different because uh, you know, it was black people who would point out, oh, maybe, you know, you should comb your hair. Oh, you, you don't, you don't talk uh, like we do. And, and, you know, I would hear things like that. And those were the moments that made me feel different and mm. made me feel just out of place. But I always found my way back to being Mexican. It wasn't until I joined the Navy where I really felt just out of place everywhere. How did that manifest? What Discovering I was black. Yeah. You know, it was, um, it was not easy. It was very difficult. And at the time, I, I didn't like black people because every encounter I had with black people was, was a negative experience, for my opinion. Uh, even though the person probably that I was interacting with was trying to help me, but I didn't understand that. When I joined the Navy, there were just many assumptions that I knew things. If you would have looked through my CD collection in my car, it was all Mexican music from Banda Machos to Los Tigres del Norte. And, uh, and that was my CD collection. This one time I was in the birthing, which is where everybody sleeps. And it was, uh, it was a group of us, chiefly black people. I just didn't know how to navigate being around black people. They were talking about different R&B songs. And, and I remember they looked at me and they're like, well, what's your favorite R&B song? I didn't know what R&B was. And it was as if I called everyone in that moment the N-word or something, because that's how much great offense people took to what I had said. And obviously they didn't know who I was. They didn't know where I came from. They didn't know anything about me other than I was some guy who was clearly black. And you're telling us that you don't know what R who do you think you are? And uh, it was it was it was ugly. African American women they actually took me under their wing and would protect me from some of the nonsense from from other people. What was the moment though that you went from being Martin Hernandez to to Lamar Thorpe? It was in the Navy. Okay. Yeah. The the moment I I still remember being in the map station and you know signing all the documents to join, and they asked for your ethnic for your racial background or something like that. Uh, I think I put Hispanic and the guy looks at me and he says, you, you got to put black. <laughs> and I said, I'm not black. I'm, I'm Hispanic. My parents are from Mexico. To me, he said, I'm looking at you. You're black. <laughs> and this is a white guy Amazing. telling me, a yeah. white guy telling me this. And, and, and he literally, he, he took white out and, and then put black. He says, you're not, you have, you, you're black and left it at that. And I became black. That was the moment, literally, I became black. Wow. When you go back to your family's house in East L.A., I mean, that you're, that's your family. It felt, mm -hmm. I mean, it, does it yeah. still feel like home and family? Oh, it always feels like home. It always feels like home and family. It feels like you, your story kind of symbolizes all these different struggles that we have with identity of what it means to be American. We're going to talk about environmental justice, uh, police reform, all these things like come together in one person. And that person is you. Like we spent so much time thinking and talking about identity. Like how does that part of your life, that history teach you? Yeah, that's why we moved here to Antioch. Yes, it was diverse, but very unique in that it was very integrated. And so I had never seen that. You know, I you know, went to school in D.C. I was in the Navy in Connecticut and Guam, and people live very self-segregated. Uh, and, and that was one of the things we just 
we didn't want. And we wanted her to grow up in a place where we can live with white people. Literally, my neighbors here are from Afghanistan. Uh, the, we have uh, a first-generation uh, Sikh family and then second-generation Indian family over there. We have African-Americans, uh, Mexicans over there. So it's just it's very di- – and that's all of Antioch. It's not just my neighborhood. It's all of Antioch. And so it was fascinating. So where I came from helped inform that decision because um, it was very important for my daughter not to think of, of – particularly for me, black people the way I thought about black people – and I didn't want her to live in a segregated white community where the only understanding of blackness was, uh, you know, this middle class black guy that she may not understand my background, uh, but more importantly, uh, what she saw on television, because mm. that informed a lot of what my understanding of black people, which was all false and wrong. And I wanted to live in a community where I was not the exception because I had a degree, but most African-Americans and most African-American males are very highly educated out here. Antioch leads and the number of people with advanced degrees, and it's primarily fueled by African-Americans. My growing up, my the way I see the world helped me help them form that because I remember quite clearly and how I even learned to believe those things about particularly African-Americans. So growing up, um, just in terms of activism, you started there with the I-710. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know about the I-710, it has 48,000 trucks a day going from the ports of L.A., and Long Beach into the Inland Empire, the warehouses. It's the most, I think, the most traffic truck corridor in the United States by far. And you lived close to where they wanted to expand it. We're not close. I, our house it would have been the eastbound slow lane. My front yard would have probably been the uh, the sound barrier. I didn't understand the politics behind it. I didn't understand environmental justice. What I did understand was that when they got to South Pasadena, this is predominantly upper middle class white community. They were going to construct a tunnel. They're going to go underneath South Pasadena to protect the white people's homes. And they were just going to flatten our homes as you move through Los, through East Los Angeles. Unbelievable. I, I didn't understand the racial dynamics of that. I just knew in my neighborhood that was not right. And so that is where my activism started. It, it just, you know, going around and helping organize people for the meetings about the about the 710 extension and really organizing people to stop the <laughs> stop the freeway. Okay, so fast forward to you moved to Antioch. We just moved here because it was affordable and it was diverse and, and integrated as it relates to the Bay Area. You know, there's what, 7.7 million people in the Bay Area. Most of the people who live in the Bay Area live in cities like Antioch and many of them situated off the water. But Antioch is unique in that we literally sit right where the ocean water meets fresh water. The Delta is clearly very, very, very special to California because it provides most of the water to most Californians. And it goes all the way on down to Southern California to, to farmers and in the Central Valley to keep your lawns green in Southern California <laughs> and, and to help give water to my family. <laughs> Literally, as you drive to your house and look to the northeast, you see hundreds of wind turbines. You do. I don't know if you know Antioch's history, but you know the coal mines were here. And the coal mines literally fueled all of the energy of California. And so it's fascinating that Antioch still continues to play, uh, not that we, we literally play a key role in the water, uh, but that the location of Antioch still has an important role in, in fueling California. 
And Andy, to your point, though, when you were thinking about a community to raise your daughter and looking for that real melting pot, that that integration, it's often been kind of a very white working class community. I mean, historically, so it it too is changing a lot. It has changed drastically. I mean, 30 years ago, Antioch was an all white working class community. Uh, It's it's a lot different than it was uh, back then. And not only that, you know, Antioch has an I mean, has an ugly history. We all know that the Delta, the Deltas, the levees were built by Chinese immigrants. Uh, Antioch was one of those cities that was that was that had rules on the books about literally being Chinese. You couldn't be Chinese and be in the city mm. at dusk. So there are tunnels in our downtown that connect to some buildings because the Chinese weren't allowed to be out on the streets uh, in the evening. And so that's part of our legacy. There are people who are still alive today who grew up when Antioch. Uh, had unofficial rules on the book about black people being here. But at the same time, it has become a place for opportunity for a lot of people from different parts of the world. It's a, it's a place of opportunity for a lot of people. So in that change, at what point did you say, you know what, I need to, I need to get on the city council. I, I want to be mayor. <laughs> what, what suddenly got you engaged in, you know what, I need, I need to get involved? I, I stumbled upon politics here. Everybody was talking about crime, crime, crime. And I just said, politics cannot just be about crime and crime and crime. You can't possibly believe that only having police officers is going to solve crime. And so uh, Monica Wilson ran on a platform of economic development. And as a young family, we were like, of course, we want economic growth. She confided in us that she had help running her campaign. And I, you know, well, I can help you. <laughs> so we did it. Everybody thought she was going to lose. Uh, but she won. And so from there, that kind of got me involved in, in politics. There was a, a road developer, uh, not a big time developer, and he wanted to reopen an old uh, casino card room here in Antioch in one of the poorest communities down the street from public housing. So I joined their efforts to try to shut all this down. Well, that created a rift between me and the city council. And so they kicked me off the economic development commission. Oh, they were mad at me. (laughs) They were mad at me for expressing uh, my right as an American to say, no, I don't want this in my neighborhood. And I feel like they overplayed their hand and they overplayed their positions as council members and the mayor. And they kicked me off an advisory committee simply because we had a disagreement. And so that then fueled my campaign for city council. And we started making slow changes when I got to the council. And I was blown away by how much concentrated power there was in certain departments. That was concerning to me. I was blown away by how things were presented to us as like, you have to do this, but you, but you, or else you can't do anything else. Or if you don't do it, then it's a catastrophe and it's the end of the world. And it's like, are you kidding me? I thought we were elected to lead the city, not to, not to give you the stamp of approval. And so that atmosphere, I just did not like. There's this theory in City Hall that... If we build up our police department to the levels they were pre-recession, everything would work out. I just come from a from a perspective where the reality is, is the economy does better. Crime tends to go down, particularly violent crime. And so this idea that you're just going to put more police officers on the streets to help crime go down is a non-starter for me. Does it mean we don't need police officers? No, that's not what I'm saying. But it certainly doesn't mean that the police officers are going to solve all of our problems. Everybody was just so offended by the idea of supporting other services. But I think what was unique, the language was so vile, so violent. I bet you had it been anybody else who didn't look like us, Mm. the way this was received would have been a a lot different. Mm. 
Because then you start hearing, oh, they just want to, their pet projects, they just want to give these hand handouts. And I started saying, you know, that that language seems eerily familiar, it seemed very Ronald Reagan-esque. And that was, and that language is racialized. That it's meant to trigger certain ideas. It was like we invited you to be at the table, but we didn't say you can have an opinion. No fui el primero, ni seré el último, pero sé que lo gozaré. Para serte sincero, un Dios el que te enseñó lo que puedes hacer con mi piel. Yeah, 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 yeah. And a lot of the discussion about race in America feels removed from the realities that you're describing now. Like, this is what it feels like in 2021 to be dealing with some of these issues. Yeah, this is the first time we've ever had a majority African-American city council in Antioch. The way people talk, you would think that the three of us came in riding on the same horse. And then the way they try to dehumanize them. When I call it out, or I'll point it out, people don't see an issue with it. And I said, well, we all 98% of the time vote exactly the same, but yet you only target the three of us. You don't seem to apply that same standard to the other two white council members. And so there's a double standard here. And so I can only assume that it has to do with the fact that we're all (laughs) African-American. And is it just, I mean, it sounds like by you acknowledging it, and calling it what it is at that time, that that hopefully gets people to think. I mean, do you have people come up to you being like, oh my God, Lamar, it's crazy. I was doing that. Like, I was lumping the three of you together for no- No, then they come back and say that what I was doing was race baiting. And <laughs> okay. They don't They don't see it. Everybody else sees it, interestingly enough, but they don't see it. But you know what? These are the same people who were on the wrong side when the whole George Floyd thing happened. They were on the wrong side when I was calling on police reform and they said, no, I was just trying to create trouble. And they've just been on the wrong side of history. So this November, you become the mayor of Antioch. Yeah, yeah this past <laughs> November, I became the, the mayor of Antioch, the second African-American to do so. We're pretty united. I think there's a small fragment in our community who just have a difficult time um, with the change. Where does that courage to battle these forces that are are so at times openly against you in a very racist and destructive way. Where inside do you you get that courage to keep fighting them? I think I got that from my uh, my mom who raised me. She was involved like in this association of foster moms and she was very vocal. And not only vocal in there, she was very vocal just in our community in general. And when she would see, you know, things that were wrong, she would just point them out and say, that's not right. uh, And be very loud about it. And she she didn't care. She just didn't care. And if she needed to march up to the school to to say, hey, listen, because uh, she always sided with teachers and, you know, but there are instances where the teachers were wrong. <laughs> and she marched up there and said, no, we need to correct this. And so I think that's where that comes from. In this role as mayor, I have to tell you, it's taken, it takes a lot. I, you know, I've been on the council for four years and I, and in the four years, I don't think I've seen the kind of venom that I see today. Mm. And, 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 I, and you know, in some instances, I've taken it very, very personal. It's very hard. <laughs> I will be the first to acknowledge it's very, very hard. And I don't mind taking it, but at some point I just can't sit there and watch other people be dehumanized by people who don't even know these people. But it's been very, very hard. And so I've, be, you know, I've learned to create um, boundaries uh, because... Well, even though you may be close to me, 
at some point I have to just stop and I have to just give time to myself for, for space. So I got to just create boundaries and be respectful and say, listen, I know what you want to say, but right now is not the time. <laughs> You're going to cross a line. We're not going to be happy at the end. So today, uh, Derek Chauvin is standing uh, trial for George Floyd's murder. But back in May 2020, when George Floyd was originally killed, what, what was the reaction in Antioch? So during the George Floyd moment, Antioch decided to bring back cops on school campuses because we had received a federal government grant. And I couldn't believe it. Well, before we even get to there, I had proposed a police reform committee, an ad hoc committee of two people. Uh, so we can look at our police manual and make sure that our policies uh, ensured that whatever happened in Minneapolis didn't happen here. What's wrong with that? <laughs> you would have thought I called for uh, the abolition of every police officer on the globe and, and not only call for their abolition, but kick them in the face, call them every dirty name you can possibly. You would have thought I called for that with a small ad hoc committee. You would have thought I called for that. I mean, people lost their minds. So it was voted down. And while I'm sure their decision wasn't based on race, it looked bad that three white people were telling two black people in the middle of this George Floyd moment that no, you can't have a committee on police reform. And then a few weeks after that, then we the chief gets noticed that he has earned a grant from the federal government to re reinstate police officers on school campuses. Meanwhile, everywhere around the world, everyone is rethinking cops on school campuses. And here's Antioch. <laughs> so that issue came up. And, and again, I don't think the vote was based on race. But the optics were terrible. The three white people in favor of cops on school campuses and the two black people against uh, in a school district that has less than 22 percent white children. It just looked bad. It felt bad. It was very insensitive for the moment. But then I get elected. One of my first acts was to call a special meeting to rescind the grant. And then we had the Angelo Quinto moment. The family of a man from Antioch says that he was having a mental health episode when they called police for help. But they say an officer pressed a knee to the man's neck and ended up killing him. It was two days before Christmas and Angelo Quinto was acting unusual. The former Navy sailor had been having recent episodes of paranoia and was holding on to his mother Cassandra and his sister, telling them not to leave him. He was hugging me like this and I'm short, so you know, it's here. His sister, Isabella, called 911, while Angelo's mother put him in a bear hug on the floor of their home in Antioch. When police arrived, they said Angelo had calmed down, but officers restrained him anyway. One officer was holding his legs, and the other officer had his, like, knee. Near lower leg. Lower leg. When paramedics got there, Angelo wasn't moving, and blood was coming out of his mouth. Three days later, Angelo was pronounced dead. Every meeting we've had since then has in maybe anywhere between 150 to 250 public comments. I love that people are participating, but it has everything from so much ugliness to uh, to in the embrace of some of our reforms, and then with you know with these in custody deaths, it, it it hasn't it hasn't helped, and and so we have a lot of work to do. Uh, but but that's just where we're at. It's it's been a lot. It, it must be just so emotionally 
especially, I mean, the backdrop is we've got COVID, we've got economic dislocation. Then you've got, you know, these really difficult issues um, that bring out a lot of people. They do. um, Based on real incidents of people dying in police custody. Yeah. And you're, you know, you're the mayor. I didn't really appreciate what it meant to be. Well, you know, being mayor is symbolic. I'm really the president of the city council. Uh, but that's not the onus the public places on you. And so literally since the Angelo Quinto came out, not since it first happened, you know, these decisions that you have to make, calling special meetings, bringing in the reforms, you know, navigating your relationship with the chief, the city manager, the rest of your council colleagues, the public and what they think and weighing all that. That's a lot. I mean, it gives me anxiety. Mm, (laughs) Every decision, I think sometimes people think I make these decisions haphazardly. I really, these decisions weigh on me a lot and Mm. I don't come to them easily to place things on the agenda, to move forward on things. I had a press conference, you know, they criticized me for rolling out my press conference. I knew no other way to be transparent with these reforms uh, for the public to have and ingest than by doing a press conference. I was very uncomfortable when I had to, when we had to announce the second in custody death, I literally sat there and I said, oh my God, I don't want to be on camera talking about this because it's just, but I have to, I don't have a choice. We have to reassure the public that, that we're being transparent. At that point, I probably hit my limit. None of these decisions come easily. They weigh on me a lot. But you've, you've done amazing things like you were able to get the the body cameras we got the body cameras yes i mean that's a big deal that was a huge deal and body cameras dash cams we're going to do independent investigations we're demilitarizing we're no longer going to accept military equipment from the federal government we still have to go back and determine whether or not we're going to keep the current equipment we have and we're going to have a hiring process for now the chief of police so that it's public the public can weigh in that's too an important position uh, for only one person, the city manager, to make. That's not fair. And it's not fair because their decisions or the chief's decisions impacts, has political implications. About how we think about policing. Do you, have you kind of got in your mind a sense of directionality of one part was demilitarizing the police, but like what what is the future that you're trying to create in Antioch as it relates to policing and and obviously both these cases had a mental health element. I mean, it policing gets we we have kind of put on the police so many functions we have. that that it's we've placed, you know, and the primary driver of police reform in our city has been mental health uh, and developing a mental health crisis response team. Uh, because it's it's become very, very clear we're overburdening police officers. And you know, that adds that adds to stress. Uh, and that's not what they signed up to. That's that's not what they signed up to do. All we're doing is paying police officers to chase people from corner to corner and hand someone a slip that says, here are these resources. That's not helpful. We're not solving anything. And so we had to really roll up our sleeves and and dig in. So then that takes us back to police reform. So so we want to better serve the community. We want mental health services. We want to make sure that police are showing up for the right things and not social work things. In terms of where we go from here, I think at some point, I know what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get us to the baseline and then in increasing accountability and transparency and having this mental health crisis response team. But I don't know exactly where it'll go from there. I think that's I think that's going to have to be figured out by this current council. There's a lot of challenges that 
Antioch has, and you're focused very heavily and appropriately on the justice elements, like how, when you get to that place, do you think that will inform how Antioch thinks about the environmental challenges that you face? We keep expanding southward and we keep abandoning older communities. Uh, and in these older communities, the environment, literally the environment is just, it's, it's not good. <laughs> I mean, it, they're covered in cement and concrete. We, that's where we find most of the uh, homeless encampments, which then has its own unique challenges as it relates to human feces, trash and, and buildup. And, and, you know, we sit on all these creeks and waterways. And so that has an impact because we're literally pumping the water. And then along the riverbanks, you have encampments and all that goes into the river and then we pump it right back to go to people's homes. <laughs> uh, and then we also have uh, issue to who has access uh, to water here. There are literally some areas where they don't have water. We have to fix that. So the environment will be a big focus, just not right now. It feels like though, until you have solved some of the justice issues writ large, you can't even start dealing with the environment issues in some ways in that they're so interconnected, not not in police issues, but in just in terms of equity writ large in a city like Antioch. When you frame it from an equity standpoint, there's a lot of work we're going to have to do to restructure all of our institutions. Uh, planning as an example, which is where, where a lot of the environmental questions get planned out and approved and, and uh, discussed. If you are a commercial property owner and you have some code violations and you get fined, if you felt that that was unfair, well, you, you probably do have the capital to upfront pay the fees to then pay for a process to get heard and then have a determination. And that's how our rules are written. Uh, but if you're Joe or Antoine or Mr. Chu from down the street and you have issues with your property that maybe with the fence that needs to be rebuilt and then you have to pay upfront for a process to be heard, how is that fair? How is that equitable? There's nothing equitable about any. That's, and again, this is not unique to, to plant. This is, these are all of our institutions. Uh, on the north of Highway 4, where I'm sure we have obesity rates that are off the charts, where, uh, where it's probably more polluted because of all the industrial parks out there and off the freeway and, and less trees. <laughs> uh, whereas the suburban communities, you know, uh, seem a little healthier because they're more walkable. We have to look at all of our services from an equity, there's a lot of work we have to do in this city to really, I mean, you know, people think it's just police reform. We have to reform the entire city. We have to reform the entire city because it's not equitable. Uh, if you have an issue with a parking ticket, uh, the appeals process is the chief of police. It's wrong in my opinion. It's insane. Exactly. Yeah. But it's not an equitable system right now. It's not fair. It's not fair to the average. It's not fair for the average person. It is absolutely not fair for the average person. A huge thank you to Lamar for sharing his journey with Podship Earth today. Our identities are shaped by a complex confluence of family, language, location, circumstance, and yet who we are isn't static. Sometimes life forces us to confront challenges to who we are suddenly like when Lamar signed up to join the Navy. But more often, the work to reevaluate our identity isn't going to get done unless we make it a priority. Since George Floyd's death, I've understood that whiteness is part of my identity and that no matter what race you are, white supremacy 
is an indelible part of the American identity. This isn't an easy journey because the ugly and hideous history of slavery and genocide conflict with the mythology of the American dream that we've crafted to paper over our most shameful actions. What we see playing out in Antioch and cities across America is a conflict between the realities of systemic racism being faced by black, indigenous, and people of color colliding with an unwillingness by whites to come to terms with parts of our identities that we'd rather not acknowledge. I want to personally thank Lamar for his humility and willingness to talk about the toll that Antioch's police reform efforts are taking on him personally and how creating clear boundaries is one of the best ways to maintain emotional health. The quest for environmental justice must begin with justice, and that process requires us to have an open and honest conversation before we can truly move forward. Those conversations will be difficult. If not, they're unlikely to get us where we need to go. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jerry Blumenfeld, maybe think about how your identity has changed over time and what parts still need to be acknowledged. <laughs> <laughs>